While you're turning there, I want to say welcome uh, to the family of God who are members here at First Baptist Nixa. I want to greet you warmly in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on this Easter morning. To all of our guests and our visitors, I want to extend to you a very warm welcome. We are pleased that you are here. Uh, We are extremely excited to be able to gather with you on this Easter morning and to worship our crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you from the very outset this morning that we here at First Baptist Nixa regard the Bible to be the word of the living God, inerrant, infallible, and powerful to raise the dead, to give faith to the unbelieving, to give sight to the blind through the Holy Spirit who spoke it. And so we have set aside a large portion of this morning as we do every Sunday morning to unwrap and to unfold and to unearth the riches that are found in this word and we invite you to do that. We're going to begin by praying and asking God to bless this time, to bless the reading and the preaching of his word and to speak to us by his spirit and through this word which is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. So I invite you to bow with me and let's invite God's help as we seek to see Christ in the pages of Scripture. Our God and our Father, we come and we bow before you this morning, weak and needy and desperate for grace. I know that there are many who are here who know that we come in that condition. We feel it from the very depths of our being. Oh, How we need your grace to be poured out upon us this morning. And there are some who are here who don't know they're in that condition. And I pray that you would awaken them to it. I pray that you would show them their desperate need for Christ. Christ crucified. Christ risen. Christ ascended. Christ reigning as King and Lord over all. And Christ returning again in judgment and salvation and to make all things new. And so we begin this centerpiece of our morning worship, the preaching of the Word by recognizing that the Word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who would believe. For indeed, Jews search for signs and Greeks for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, to those who are the called, Christ, the wisdom and the power of God. To those who are the called. So I ask you, in the name of Christ, glorify your Son this morning by calling out of death and into life, and out of darkness into light, and out of unbelief and into faith, and out of irrelevance and apathy into a desperate grasp of our crucified and risen Jesus. Come, unfold your word to our hearts. Lift up Christ before our eyes. And call forth faith that we may believe and be saved. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Well, in the eighth chapter of the book of Acts, Luke relates a story of a divinely ordained encounter between Philip the Evangelist and an Ethiopian treasury officer. Now, Philip had been, earlier in chapter 8, had been preaching the gospel up in the region of Samaria, seeing many come to saving faith in Christ and baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. But during his ministry there, the angel of the Lord spoke to him and said, Go, I want you to travel south to the desert road that extends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so Philip went in obedience to the command of the Lord, and he came upon a caravan that was traveling from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. And seated in the chariot was an Ethiopian official, and he was reading a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And as Philip ran up upon the chariot, he heard the words of the Ethiopian reading from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And these were the words that Philip heard. He was led as a sheep to slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers are silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And Philip asked the man a question. He said, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian answered, he said, how could I unless someone guides me? And at this point, the man invited Philip up into his chariot and he said, please tell me of whom does the prophet speak? Of whom does Isaiah speak? Of himself or of someone else? Now the passage in question is indeed a difficult, to, a difficult one to understand unless someone guides you. It speaks of an unnamed figure known only as the servant of the Lord. A figure who endures throughout the course of the 53rd chapter unimaginable suffering. Such that his appearance becomes so grotesque and so disfigured that he's unrecognizable. But many, many men throughout the course of history and the annals of time have suffered horrific deaths at the hands of, of wicked men. What makes this one so different, so noteworthy that it is related in such graphic detail in Isaiah 53? What is so different about this servant? The answer is that even a surface reading of this chapter reveals that this servant's suffering and death has redemptive significance, not for just one, but for many, and not just for many in Israel, but for all the nations. By his death, this suffering servant of Isaiah 53 takes away the sins of his people and renders them clean and holy before God. So it's no wonder that the Ethiopian asks Philip of whom the prophet speaks. It is so abundantly clear that the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 is special. And that what he has done is unrepeatable and has significance for anybody whose eyes fall upon the pages of the scroll. Whose death could possibly accomplish the salvation of another person, let alone many nations. And the next verse in Acts chapter 8 is absolutely classic. I love it. I hope that it's a foundation of my preaching ministry. 
It says this, Acts chapter 8 and verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Christ to him. He preached Jesus. Then faith came by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And by the power of divine grace, the Ethiopian realized that the servant of the Lord suffered for him. The servant was pierced for his transgressions, was crushed for his iniquities, was chastened for his well-being, was scourged that he would be healed. And my fervent, heartfelt prayer this morning is that the same would happen for many of you who have come out this morning to hear the word of the living God. Like Philip What I plan to do by God's help and by His grace and I pray for His glory is to open my mouth and to preach Jesus to you from this Scripture in order that by God's grace faith may come by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ and that you too may see in the suffering of this servant your own hope of salvation and that like the Ethiopian eunuch you would leave out from these doors rejoicing. That's my prayer. May God do it in our midst this morning. The servant song of Isaiah 53, it actually begins up in 52 verse 13, is the fourth and final servant song that we find in the book of Isaiah. And it's comprised of five stanzas, five verses of the song as it were. This morning we're going to walk briefly through each one of these stanzas relating the story of Christ. You have the main theme of every one of these stanzas printed for you on the back of your bulletin so you can follow along. They'll also be up on the screen behind me. And we're going to see how the Lord spoke through His prophet Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Christ to reveal that the salvation of the world would come through a dying and rising Messiah, through a servant who would both suffer and Be satisfied with what his suffering accomplished. So let's journey through this song together this morning. The song begins in verse 13 of chapter 52. And like many great stories, this one actually begins at the end. The success of the servant's mission is is never in doubt. The outcome is never a cause for worry. In fact, most of the song functions as a sort of flashback showing how the servant succeeded in securing the salvation of his people. So the song begins with this triumphant declaration, this assured declaration. God says, behold, my servant will prosper. He's going to succeed. He's going to triumph in the battle into which I'm sending him. My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and exalted. And so at the very beginning, we're told how the story ends. It ends with Christ Jesus, high and lifted up and exalted. It ends with the Lord Jesus, risen in triumph over the grave, exalted to the Father's right hand, and reigning upon His throne in power. Now, it's not at all surprising, if you're you're acquainted with the Scriptures, it's not surprising our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. It's not surprising that God's servant would succeed. What is surprising is the way in which he prospers. The way in which he succeeds. 
how the servant succeeds in his mission is, beginning in verse 14, we see, by a method that, frankly, none of us would have chosen. The servant prospers through his suffering and through his dying. So look in verse 14 where he says, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Appearance marred, changed, disfigured, off, more than any man. His form more than the sons of men. These verses speak of a brutal and merciless and unrelenting torture that was suffered by the Lord Christ in his passion. A passion, a suffering which so disfigured his body and his face to such a degree that he was, he was rendered utterly unrecognizable. The effect this had upon the crowd of, written, of witnesses was to evoke astonishment. It's as if a collective gasp broke out in the courtyard when Pilate brought forth the Lord Jesus. Now when I first saw about ten years ago Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, that was my reaction too. Was it yours? I remember there being moments, particularly with regard to the scourging, when the gruesome extent of his suffering forced me to look away. I wasn't used to seeing such torment. It bothered me. It bothered me even though I was in a movie theater, knew with my mind, with my rational being, that I'm watching an actor who's dressed in makeup and I'm seeing special effects happening. He's not actually being scourged. His flesh is not actually being ripped from his body exposing his organs. That's not actually happening. And I knew that and yet astonishment welled up within me and I had to look away. So imagine the astonishment of the crowd who knew what they were watching was real. Imagine the astonishment of the crowd when Jesus is brought forth before them. Face swollen and bloodied from the beatings and the slaps in the face that he had received from the soldiers of the high priest and from the Roman guard. His hair matted with sweat and dust and blood from the crown of thorns still pressing their way into his skull. The purple robe draped across his shredded back. Put yourself in the feet of the crowd as all that your naked eye can see are dirt and blood and raw flesh. And you see Pilate stand up and he motions towards Jesus and he says, Behold the man and the thought that comes into your mind, is it even human? How is he still alive? But before we delve into the depths of his redemptive sufferings, Isaiah is going to bring us up once more in this final stanza and he's going to establish the servant's success. As the rest of the song will make clear, his suffering was not in vain. His death was not pointless. His passion was not meaningless. Verse 15 says this, Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. If you were a Jew living in the 8th century B.C., listening to the prophet Isaiah as he speaks the words of the Lord to you, you would hear the word sprinkle within a very specific context. You would hear the word sprinkle and words like sanctify and cleanse and atone would come to your mind. 
And so Isaiah presents the servant of the Lord as a high priest, sprinkling the blood of atonement upon the people. Not the blood of bulls and not the blood of goats, but blood from his own veins and sprinkling it not only upon the Jews but upon the nations, indicating that the significance of Christ's death does not extend only to Israel but to men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It extends, listen to me, it extends to 2014 to Nixa, Missouri. It extends to this congregation. He still sprinkles the nations. And he can sprinkle you this morning and sanctify you and cleanse you and make you whole. Anyone at any time and in any place who has the blood of the serpent, serpents, the blood of the servant sprinkled upon them by faith is made clean, is sanctified, their sins atoned for. And according to the Apostle Paul, who quoted verse 15 in Romans chapter 15 and verse 21, the sprinkled blood renders the nations clean and it is transported to the nations across the ages and across the globe and applied to those who had not heard in this manner through the preaching of the gospel. Paul quotes from this verse and he says, Therefore, I didn't want to lay on any other man's foundation, but I took the gospel where it had not been heard. How does the blood get from Calvary and extend to Nixon, Missouri? It extends through the preaching of the gospel. The suffering and the death of Christ, verse 1, the first stanza, verses 13 to 15, tells us the death of Jesus does not signal his defeat. On the contrary, the cross is the very means of his victory and of ours. So the servant is successful. Let there be no doubt as we delve into the depths of the cross. He's going to succeed in that which he set out to do. Secondly, Isaiah 53.1 begins the flashback portion of the song. Okay, so having established the ultimate success of the servant of the Lord, we now look back upon how that success came about. How did the servant succeed? And in verses 1 through 3, we see that the servant succeeded by being scorned. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, And like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty. That we should look upon him. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face he was despised. And we did not esteem him. The Apostle John wrote in his first chapter that he came to his own and his own received him not. Which is a reminder that then as now the overwhelming reaction to the person of Christ is not faith but rather unbelief and rejection and scorn. The people of Isaiah's day, the people of John's day and the people of today by and large will not cannot see him for what he is in fact he is the arm of the lord extended to the nations in salvation 
The arm of the Lord, which is a figure of speech used in Isaiah referring to God's saving activity. God reached out his arm into Egypt and he drew forth his people by the power of his outstretched arm. In Christ, God stretched out his arm to a hopeless and dying people and he stretches it out still in salvation. God stretched forth his powerful saving arm to rescue his people, but by and large they did not see and they did not understand and they did not believe and they did not receive him. Why? Isaiah tells us it's because he was so wonderfully ordinary. He wasn't like Saul. He wasn't wasn't a head taller than all of his countrymen. He didn't walk around with a glowing aura surrounding him as he walked, you know, from the carpentry shop down to the river. you, You would not have seen Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, and picked him out of a crowd and said, ah, hey, that guy's the Messiah. He had no stately form or majesty that we should be attracted to him. In fact, when Jesus did reveal himself as the Messiah and he testified to his claim by healing the sick and making the lame to walk and cleansing the lepers and raising the dead, even when he performed all of these signs in front of the people, they still did not believe. And not only did they not believe and not only did they not receive him for what he was, their Messiah and their Savior and their Lord, they went a step further and they despised him and they rejected him and they forsook him and they hid their face from him and they killed him, says Isaiah. And I wonder this morning what your reaction to Jesus is. The Apostle John said that when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I ask you, and I want you to ask yourselves this morning, when you see Christ revealed so vividly in the pages of Scripture and in the words of sermons, do you see glory? Do you see a Savior who is full of grace And truth. Do you see the arm of the Lord stretched out to sinners, sinners like us, in order to rescue us and bring us back into his presence? Do you embrace this Jesus, the suffering and the scorned servant, as your only Savior and embrace his work as your only hope and bow before him as your all-glorious King? Is that your reaction to Jesus? Or like so many, both then and now, do you yawn at him with a sense of, of measured indifference, which is simply another more refined way to despise him and reject him and forsake him. My prayer this morning is that God, by His Spirit and through the message preached, would stretch out His saving arm that many of you this morning would hear His message and believe and be saved. Do not scorn Him. Do not see him as so ordinary, without stately form or majesty. You should see glory veiled in flesh. Third verse. The very center of the servant song. The very center of the gospel. The very center of the Christian faith. Verses 4 through 6. If you came in this morning, maybe you don't have a whole lot of history 
with the Christian faith, I want you to pay a special attention right now because this is the heart of it. You want to know what Christianity is all about? Christianity is all about substitution. How does the servant save his people? He saves his people by way of a vicarious, substitutionary, sacrificial atonement. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Do you see the substitution? It's the heart of the gospel. So if you find yourself here this Easter morning unacquainted with the Christian gospel. Or if like so many in the American Bible Belt you find Jesus so irrelevant and inglorious that you only give attention to him once a year on Easter. Let me be absolutely clear that your eternal destiny rests on what you do with verses 4 through 6. There are, I think, four truths that you need to embrace by faith this morning. If you would be among the saved. If you would be among the nations that are sprinkled. If you would be among the children that Jesus sees in verse 11 and is satisfied. Four truths you should embrace. Number one, we are all lost and wandering sheep. Every one of us. There are no exceptions in this room. None. We have all turned aside from the way of God. We've chosen our own way. We've all rejected the Lord as God and have decided to be our own God, to make our own rules and to make our own way in this world. That's how the Lord sees us anyway. You may see yourself in a different way, but the Lord sees you as a lost and wandering sheep. And I would remind you, I hope that this hits home. His opinion of you is the only one that matters. Number two. The price of our rebellion is death. And when the Bible speaks of the wages of sin, Romans 3.23 being death, it does not mean mere physical death. Listen, the price of our sin goes beyond piercing and scourging and chastening and crushing. It means spiritual death. It means everlasting exposure to the holy and righteous wrath of God against our sin. So you may view yourselves as, as a pretty good guy, pretty good gal, right? Relatively moral, nice family, good job, white picket fence, two cars, home mostly paid for. But God views you as a lost and wandering sheep headed for slaughter. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone his own way. And God does not delight in the slaughter of sheep. God desires that you would reach out to the shepherd who calls to you. 
come. Truth number three. God in His sovereign mercy and grace sent forth His servant, His only begotten Son, to take our place as our sin bearer. So at the core of the Christian gospel is this concept of imputation or transfer. God caused all of the iniquity of His people, all of our transgressions, and all of our self-glorifying, self-justifying, God-demeaning rebellion, and He placed all of it upon the shoulders of His servant. So as a believer this morning, I stand before you bearing none of my own sin. It was taken off of me and placed on Him taken off of me and imputed to Christ, who bore it all as my sin-bearing substitute. And truth number four, bearing my iniquity and my griefs and my sorrows, and yours if you believe, bearing our sins, Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, was pierced, crushed, chastened, scourged, slaughtered in our place. So your reaction to this news will be one of two things, maybe three. You will either be offended at this, it's okay, the gospel's been an offense for 2,000 years. You don't understand it yet, that's okay, we're praying that you would. Or you consider it irrelevant as you wait for me to finish. I want you to hear this. If you reject it, do not yet understand it, or consider it irrelevant, then the arm of the Lord has not yet been extended to you. Has not yet been revealed to you. And I've prayed for you. But if you came in this morning, this Easter morning, April 20th, 2014, with a load of guilt and sin and shame and sorrow and grief, and you don't know what to do with it, let me speak directly to you. Pretending that your sin and your guilt is not real will not work. Trying harder to be better and to be more religious and to become more moral and to put off sin and and to thereby make yourself acceptable in the sight of God, that won't work either. It will not produce the peace of conscience that your soul longs for. But if your soul resonates this morning by God's grace with that picture of a lost and wandering sheep headed for the slaughter, then you should take heart this morning and lift up your head for your salvation draws nigh. Christ died for such as you. Jesus loves sinners. He's a friend of sinners. And you, beloved, are the object of God's eternal and saving love. God was pleased. Not begrudgingly. He was pleased to crush His servant for you. He was pleased to take your sin and your guilt and to lay it upon His Son and to pour out His just and holy wrath against your sin upon your substitute. And listen, and Christ was pleased to take it. 
He was pleased to take your sin and your guilt upon himself and to absorb the wrath of God in your place. And what you need to do now is you need to embrace the transfer of verses 4 through 6. By faith, you need to take the sin that weighs down upon your shoulders. By faith, you need to put it on Christ. And by faith, you need to reach out for the righteousness that he freely offers you. And you need to take it from him and clothe yourselves with it. Your unrighteousness to him, punished at the cross. His righteousness to you, wrapping you as a garment of salvation and rendering you acceptable in the sight of the Father. And all you need to do is believe. Rest in the good news of Isaiah 4 through 6. Embrace the gospel by faith and you'll be saved. Sprinkled, clean, sanctified, and you'll walk out through those doors rejoicing this morning. Fourth verse. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. I'm going to give you two reasons why this stanza is so important. Number one, it highlights the willingness and the submission of the servant to the Father's plan of salvation. God did not have to twist the Son's arm to take your sins upon His shoulders. If you read... If you read the Gospel accounts of the trial and the execution of Jesus, you get the very clear picture that what was occurring to Christ was a grave miscarriage of justice. There was an illegal trial before the Sanhedrin filled with conflicting testimony of false witnesses. There was a Roman governor who repeatedly examined Jesus and repeatedly declared, I find no fault in him, and yet threw him to the wolves anyway to be crucified in order to appease the crowds. Coward. Yet the servant of the Lord was not the victim of circumstance and he was not caught in a web of events beyond his control. Far be it from that, beloved. John chapter 10 says that this was the shepherd on a divine mission to lay down his life for the sheep. No man takes his life. No, he has authority to lay it down and he has authority to pick it back up again. No man took the life of the Son of God. Rather, he willingly trudged like a sheep to the slaughter up the mountain of Calvary, carrying the own instrument of his execution on his back. Secondly, this stanza highlights the innocence and righteousness of the servant, which is important because it displays that not only was he willing to be our substitute, he was well qualified to be so. A lamb without spot, without blemish, having done no violence, having uttered no deceit. And this is the great exchange of the Christian gospel. My unrighteousness to him and his spotless righteousness to me. And that exchange only works if the substitute is sinless, if the lamb is without spot and without blemish. 
You know, the Romans probably intended to take Jesus' body down from the cross and toss it into the rubbish heap of the Kidron Valley. It's what they did with the bodies of condemned and crucified criminals. But it was because of his innocence that God ordained that he should be buried in a grave, buried with honor in the tomb of a rich man. And this was fulfilled when Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and requested the body of Jesus and anointed him for burial and placed him in his own tomb, hewn out of the rock. Willing and qualified is Christ. Finally, we return to where we started with the triumphant servant and a lavish description of his successful mission. But before we get there, Isaiah has reserved one final phrase for our consideration. I want you to read it there at the beginning of verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Just stop there. This is extremely important. Christ's death was not an accident. It was not the result of chance. He didn't die as a victim of circumstance. The Jews had Jesus arrested and falsely accused and unfairly tried, yet it was not the Jews who were ultimately responsible for the death of Christ. The Romans received him from the Jews and tortured him and scourged him and crucified him, but it was not the Romans who finally killed Jesus. Who slew the Son of God? God did. God the Father sacrificed God the Son, and Christ's death was the sovereign act of God the Father. I want you to think about what's going on here at the cross. I want you to fathom the eternal and sovereign love which is being manifested there. The love of the Father for His children. The love of the shepherd for His sheep. The Lord was pleased to crush Him. Putting Him to grief. But today is Easter. It is not Good Friday. And though to this point we've been immersed in the language of suffering and sacrifice and blood and a cross. This is not the end of the story. The The gospel does not end with the crushed and mangled body of the servant lying cold and lifeless in the tomb. Having offered himself once for sinners, God the Father raised his son from the dead. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he has poured out himself to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Even though the word resurrection is not found anywhere in these verses, the idea of it permeates every line. The servant was dead, was crushed, but he is alive 
forevermore. He sees and dead men don't see. His days are prolonged and the days of the dead are done. And the good pleasure of the Lord is prospering in his hand. This is not a servant who is dead. This is a servant who is high and lifted up and exalted and reigns as king and Lord over the heavens and the earth with all authority given him from the Father. The suffering and slaughtered servant is risen triumphant over sin and death and hell. And he's ascended to the Father's right hand where he reigns as Lord of heaven and earth. And do you know what emotion fills his heart as he looks upon what he has done? Upon what he has accomplished? Isaiah says it's satisfaction. It's joy. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. What brings him satisfaction? What fills his heart with joy as he looks out upon what he has done? Verse 10, he's satisfied when he sees his offspring. Those he died to purchase. Men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Those who bow before him in faith and cry out to him as Lord. He is satisfied because by his death he attained his own resurrection. His days are prolonged. And now he lives forevermore to execute God's good pleasure and sovereign will in history. The scroll is in his hand and he is worthy to break its seal. Verse 11, he's satisfied because he sees many. He sees all those whom the Father has given him. He sees those whom he has justified by bearing their iniquities. Verse 12, he is satisfied because he's triumphant and he's exalted. He's a conquering king, returning from victory to be richly rewarded by his father. The first line of verse 12 should probably be translated like this. Therefore, I will apportion to him the many. The many that he justified up in verse 11. They're his now. They're his reward. You are his reward. And he will apportion the strong as spoil. In other words, because he has poured himself out unto death and was numbered among the transgressors and bore the sin of many and intercedes for the transgressors, God has exalted the Lord Jesus to the highest place of honor and he has given him a reward, those whom he justified, and he has placed all of his enemies underneath his feet. So Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, he sees it and he is satisfied for because he was found in the appearance as a man and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross, God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I want you to hear this. Oh, how different This looks for the offspring, for the children, than it does for the enemies. For the children, the image of every knee bowed and every tongue confessing evokes the emotion of joy. Because we've been bowing our knees before Christ ever since he called us to himself. And we've been confessing him as Lord ever since he spoke our names. It is our joy and our delight to do this. To bow before him and to worship him as the Lord and the crucified and risen king. We no longer hide our faces from him. We no longer despise him. We no longer think of him as abhorrent and unattractive. We see him as beautiful and glorious. And it's our heart's desire to behold his face 
but not so for the rest. For whom the bowing of the knee and the confession of the mouth is not an act of celebration, but one of condemnation. The confession of the wicked, the crucified and risen and exalted Christ will receive as his due, as his just reward. But I do not get the idea that that's what he delights in. That that's what brings him joy. But oh, the joy and the satisfaction that fills his soul when he sees the children, the offspring, bowed before him, crowns cast at his feet, praise raised to the Lord and the Lamb. And so the call this morning goes out to the children, to the offspring, to the seed, to the heirs of Christ. Worship. Worship Him in grateful joy for what He has done. It was for you that He suffered. It was for you that He died. It was your transgressions for which He was pierced. It was your iniquities for which he was crushed. It is your well-being for which he was chastened. And it's by his scourging that you are healed. And he was pleased to do it. Oh, how he loves you. You children of God. Love him back. And to the rest of you, I issue another call. The outsiders, the unbelievers. Why will you die in your sins when there's a Savior such as this? Why, why will you perish when there is such love and mercy and grace freely given and freely received? So the call to you this morning is to come to Jesus by faith. He will justify you. He will heal you. He will sprinkle his cleansing and atoning blood upon your heart by faith. He will take away your filthy garments of sin and he will clothe you in the robe of his spotless righteousness and he will bring you before before the Father and say, "This is my child." For whom I died. And it is my delight to present him. Blameless with great joy. Before the presence of you my father. He turns away. None of all who come to him. So come to him this morning. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith take your sins. And put it upon him. And by faith take of his righteousness. And clothe yourself with it. And believing on him. Call upon his name. And ask him to save you. And ask him to take away your sin. And ask him to make you new. And I promise you on the authority of scripture. That whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. Will be saved. And I command you in the name of Christ. To do so and to do it now. Call upon his name, for today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts and do not resist him who calls. You want to be the children. You want to be a child? Go to him. 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he says. And that call is just as relevant for you as it was to the people to whom he first spoke it. Believe. And to the children, it's worship. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, I pray that you will do in this place what only you can do and what no one else can. I pray that you will awaken the dead. I pray that you will give sight to the blind. I pray that you will call the unbelieving into faith. And I pray that you would grant repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all who call upon your name. And to you this morning, who come in unbelieving with a load of sin, and if God has made you to know your sin, I just urge you right now in the quietness of where you're at, call upon him, ask him to save you, and he will. There is no magic prayer, there are no magic words to repeat. You go to him as a crucified and risen and ascended and exalted king, and you say, King Jesus, save me, or something like that. You call. And he will save you. God, magnify yourself in our midst this morning. Glorify yourself in the midst of your people. Be enthroned and exalted upon our praises. Be satisfied with what you see. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.